Now hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 10. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept for my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of heaven of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you this morning. It's wonderful to gather per usual uh, on the Lord's Day to worship, to sing, to pray, to sit under the word preached, um, to encounter God together with one another as we open the scriptures. And it is a huge honor of mine to be able to preach the scriptures to us this morning. Uh, we are, as you heard Britt read in the book of Mark, um, we have been walking through a sermon series through the gospel of Mark, uh, selected passages in the gospel of Mark this spring leading up to Easter. We're looking at Jesus, we're looking at his life, at what it means for our life today. And to give a little bit of context before we just jump straight into our passage, uh, Jesus, when he came, as you'll recall, his focus in his preaching and in his teaching was on the kingdom of God. That's a term that you may have heard before. Um, if you have been at Sojourn over the course of really any time, you've heard about the kingdom of God. The king is here and the kingdom is here. That was the focus of Jesus's teaching ministry. And in this section, Jesus, through his interactions with a few people, both in our passage and in the surrounding passages, uh, his interest is in communicating the nature of the kingdom of God and how it's received. Last week, Dodds preached for us uh, a sermon on a passage that talks about children, where Jesus says, let the children come to me for to such belongs the kingdom of God. These little ones who have nothing and can really offer nothing are the ones to whom the kingdom belongs. And today we come to a passage where a man comes before Jesus who is the opposite of that. He's a man who has a lot. 
and he comes to try to offer Jesus a lot and he goes away sad. And so it's a striking position in the gospel of Mark. And what I want to do is just jump right in and start looking at the story as we're given it, pull out a couple of observations to see what the Lord might have for us in his word this morning. And so look with me, starting in verse 17. Verse 17 of our passage, we see that Jesus is setting out on his journey. That's how Mark opens this section. And Mark includes that as a reminder uh, that Jesus is headed somewhere. And we know, if you're familiar with the rest of the story, we know where Jesus is going. Jesus is on a journey. He's headed toward Jerusalem. In two weeks will be, uh, excuse me, next week is Palm Sunday, where Jesus enters Jerusalem. And then after Palm Sunday, Jesus is very quickly tried, hung on a cross, and dies. And so Jesus is on a journey headed toward Jerusalem to take upon his shoulders the sins of the world. And so at the beginning of this passage, we're reminded that Jesus is continuing on this same journey. Jesus's earthly ministry is drawing to a close. His time is short. And so it's unsurprising that this particular action with this rich man points, I think, to something incredibly significant for our understanding of what it means to be Christians. As Jesus is on his way, a rich man runs up to him, kneels, addresses him as good teacher and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. This man is sometimes referred to as the rich young ruler. That's kind of a combination of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew tells us that he was young. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. And in all three, including here in Mark, we're told that he's a wealthy man. He's a man who, according to verse 22, has many possessions. And in the way that it's referred to, he probably has a ton of land. He's a very wealthy man in Israel. And he expresses a good deal of reverence toward Jesus. He says, good teacher. Good teacher is a word that is a term, a referent to a person that's virtually unparalleled in ancient Jewish sources. The word good was typically used to refer to God alone. God alone is good. God alone was good. And so Jesus's response saying, why do you call me good teacher would, would have been understandable. You didn't really refer to people as good. There were other terms of, um, of appreciation uh, uh, or of compliment, but usually good was not one of them. But this man comes up and he expresses a good deal of reverence. He sees something in Jesus. And he asks perhaps the most intense question that anyone has asked Jesus thus far in the Gospel of Mark. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He puts it bluntly. Get straight to the point. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think I'm missing something and I'm pretty sure that you are the one who can tell me. So how do I get eternal life? And it's clear from how Jesus responds that this man is both eager and misguided. Look at verses 18 through 19. Jesus says, what, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So this, this man comes and asks Jesus about eternal life and Jesus responds by pushing back on the term the man uses to address him and pointing the man to something he already knows. He points him to a portion of the 10 commandments. As a quick side note, Jesus lists seven commandments. Six of those commandments are six of the 10 commandments. The seventh is do not defraud. And that's probably a combination of the eighth and ninth commandments, don't steal and don't bear false witness that would have been tailored for a rich man because often rich people get rich by defrauding the poor. And so at first though, so, that's, so Jesus gives him 
uh, the, the, uh, refers back to the Ten Commandments, and at first this response might sound a bit strange. It's important to see, though, that in both aspects of Jesus' answer, Jesus is pointing the man to God. The man addresses Jesus as good, and Jesus responds, goodness belongs to God alone. The man asks about eternal life, and Jesus responds by pointing the man to the commandments that God had given to his people so that they might have life. For just a little bit of background there, the Ten Commandments were given to the ancient Israelites by God, along with a number of other laws in the days of Moses. And there's this section of the law, right when it's first given, called the blessings and the curses. And that's where God, through Moses, tells the people, if you obey the law, then you will receive blessing, which will look like life. If you don't obey the law, then you will receive cursing, which looks like death. So hear this word and do it and you will live. Don't and you will die. So it's a very clear emphasis of the law. It's given so that the people might have life. And so here, when the man asks about eternal life, it's actually not that strange for Jesus to point back to the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and say, you know the commandments. You know that they were given to you that you might have life. The man uses the word good. Jesus points him to God. The man asks about eternal life. Jesus points him to the Ten Commandments, which at their heart center around loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. In short, Jesus' answer to this question from the young man is that the answer is found in God. And the man, of course, misses this cue. So Jesus responds, and then the man replies. He doesn't even talk about Jesus' address of the word goodness. He blows past that and talks about the commandments. Verse 20, the man says to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And here again, we see the earnestness of this man. He comes up, right? He hits his knees in front of Jesus. He asks what he can do to inherit eternal life. And when Jesus points to the law, he says, yes, yes, I've already done all of that. And this is probably honest. This is an important point to make, I think. The man is probably being honest rather than hypocritical. We may, as Christians, look at this and doubt his sincerity because we have the words of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus clearly shows that evil intent is the same as evil action. And so we might look at someone like this claiming to have observed the Ten Commandments and say, nah, he's lying. But the Ten Commandments, with the exception of the final commandment against coveting, which Jesus doesn't include in this passage, pointed to acts. And the clear Jewish understanding at the time was that even if one's intent was otherwise, these commandments could be kept in the realm of action. This is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his pre-Christian days could claim in Philippians 3 that according to the righteousness by the law, I was blameless. And he wasn't lying. In the words of one commentator, that a person possessed the ability without exception to fulfill God's commandments was so firmly rooted in rabbinic teaching that in all seriousness, they spoke of people who had kept the entire Torah from A to Z. Torah is a a word that refers to the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And so for the man to reply to Jesus and say, I've done all of these things from my youth, he is responding confidently from a Jewish perspective and he's probably being honest, but he's missing something critical. You see, the way he worded his initial question is quite revealing. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so in contrast with Jesus' teaching up until this point that a person receives the kingdom or life as a gift from God, this man makes it clear that in his mind, the kingdom of God is something that he can achieve or earn, something that he can work his way into. And so knowing this, 
Jesus has attempted to draw this man's attention upward to God. Only God is good. Remember, the commandments all point to a God who wants to draw you into loving relationship with him. But the man misses it. He points back to the record of his performance and says, see, I've, I've done all that stuff. I just need the other thing. I know I'm missing something. So Jesus responds with the thing that the man is missing. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Before we get to what Jesus says here, for just a moment, look at what Mark tells us right there at the beginning of verse 21. When faced with this man's misunderstanding, look at how Jesus reacts. He knows this man is missing it. He knows that this man is mistaken. And we're told that Jesus looks at him and loves him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Here's a man who is focused on himself and his own ability. He's uncertain whether he had God's full approval on account of his life of obedience. He's missing the whole point of the law and he's missing the answers that Jesus is giving. And do you see how Jesus responds? Tenderly. He looks at him and he loves him. This is the only time in the gospel of Mark that Jesus is said to love a particular person. This is genuine affection. This is another thing that points to the fact that this man probably wasn't being dishonest or hypocritical. He was probably, he was a bit unreflective and he wasn't very self-aware, but he wasn't being arrogant. We see, we've seen in other places how Jesus responds to people who are being hypocritical or arrogant. Here we see Jesus loves this man. So there might be someone in here who needs to hear this this morning. Here's a man who is getting it all wrong. And Jesus's reaction to him is love, affection. You, your picture of God might be that if you're doing all things well, God is pleased with you and he's happy to see you. And if you're not, he's standing back, crossed arms, shaking his head, waiting for you to get it together. Here's a man who's not even in the kingdom, who's getting it all wrong, who's missing it. He's, Jesus is answering his questions and he's still missing it. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. And from this place of love, Jesus goes straight to the man's heart. Look at what Jesus says. He says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew the thing that stood in between this man and the kingdom of God. The man's money had ensnared him. It was wrapped around his heart. His trust was not in God. His trust was in his money. Here was a man who was used to being the provider. He was used to providing for himself and for those around him. He was used to having control over his life, over people around him through his wealth. He was not in need because he had everything that he thought he needed. Even so, he comes to Jesus asking about eternal life and about the kingdom because in his heart, deep in his heart, he must have known that he was missing something and he was right. But you see, the only thing this man needs is need itself. You may be familiar with the story of the Exodus. 
It's one of the most well-known stories in the Bible when God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt and helps, he delivers them from slavery by um, sending plagues upon Egypt and by parting the Red Sea. It's a story full of miracles of deliverance. And there's this moment in the story of the Exodus, it's, it's at the heart of the climax of the story where God has sent the plagues and finally Pharaoh relents, the king of Egypt relents and he sends the Israelites out and they're escaping. There's hundreds of thousands of Israelites who have left towns and villages in Egypt and are working their way towards, back towards the promised land or really towards the wilderness through the Red Sea. And they come up and they set up camp on the Red Sea, right by the Red Sea. They're carrying, they're, they're former slaves. They don't have weapons probably. They're not ready for war. They're carrying all of their stuff with them that they can carry because they're moving from one place to another place. And then as they're traveling towards the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind and he, send, changes his mind and he sends an army after them. Right? And so the Israelites are carrying all their stuff. They're right at the Red Sea and they're thinking, okay, this is where the Lord has led us. And then they see the Pharaoh's army coming towards them and they panic. You may be familiar with the story. They look around at themselves. They look at the Egyptian army and terrified, they begin yelling at Moses. They say, what have you done? You're gonna get us killed, to paraphrase. But then Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. It's my favorite verse in the whole book of Exodus. Well. I don't want to, might be. It's my favorite verse right now in the whole book of Exodus. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Exodus chapter 14, verse 14. After this, God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through the sea on dry land and then the sea closes upon the Egyptian army. And this is perhaps the central kind of foundational salvation event of the Old Testament. It's the event from which the rest of the story of God's people throughout the rest of the Bible builds. God chose his people, he loves his people. The only reason they are alive is because he has delivered them with his hand through no good of their own, through nothing that they did themselves. They had looked at themselves and at the Egyptians and were terrified. They knew they couldn't save themselves, but then through Moses, God said to them, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. They didn't lift a finger in their own salvation. They watched as God did it all. What are we going to do? They asked Moses and Moses looked at them and said, nothing, God will do it. And so a few chapters later, when God gives them the 10 commandments, you know how the 10 commandments begin? There's a number of times all throughout the law that this happens, but right there at the beginning of the 10 commandments, they begin with the phrase, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he goes in, you shall have no other gods before me and so forth. That's the beginning and the centerpiece of the Old Testament law. The law was given and it begins with the story of God's deliverance. In other words, the commandments are to be kept, but they're always to be understood within the context of a God who has been faithful to deliver his people, a personal God who loves his people, who desires relationship with them that looks like dependence on him and worship of him alone. And so when this man comes up to Jesus, and says, Jesus, look what all I've done. Tell me what else I can do to inherit eternal life. He's missing the entire point of the law. The law is not about self-help and independence. The law is about 
dependence and relationship. It's about discipleship. It's about following God rather than yourself. Trusting in God rather than yourself. And what is it that is keeping this man from fully surrendering to the Lord? You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In this one sentence, this man's pursuit of God is unraveled. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, the man goes away sorrowful for he, has, he had great possessions. His face fell, etched with disappointment and sorrow. This man is so entangled with his riches that he cannot make this sacrifice. Interestingly, this is where in the passage we discover that he's rich. Until now, he's just been a man. A man comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so in that sense, he could really be any man, any man who is invited, invited to follow Jesus. And we see that the problem for this particular man was his wealth. In Judaism, it was normal for wealth to be seen as a blessing from God. Often resulting, or reflecting, uh, resulting from or reflecting one's faithfulness to the law. In this case, however, the man's wealth was getting in the way of what the law truly demanded. Trust in the Lord, complete trust in the Lord rather than in himself. This man had everything except radical trust in God who alone is good. A trust that would have allowed him to obey this commandment with joy, trusting that God knew what was best for him. So in this in mind, with this in mind, you can see that the main focus of the call of Jesus to this man is actually right there at the end. After Jesus tells him to sell everything and give it away, Jesus ends with the phrase, and come, follow me. You see, this is huge. At this time in Jesus's ministry, the disciples are a relatively small group. This is an invitation for this man to join the disciples. We would have known this man's name if he had said yes. Jesus was extending relationship to this man. The ultimate answer to this man's question in search of eternal life is the call to follow Jesus. The call from one world to another, from one allegiance to another, from one way of doing things to another. An authentic life centered on the gift of Jesus' own person and relationship. Jesus himself is the one answer to this man's search for eternal life. Having Jesus as his king, as his shepherd, is the one thing this man lacks. And this one thing he lacks turns out to be the thing keeping him from complete trust. You see, in making this story simply the story of a rich man who wouldn't sell his things, I think that we run the risk of missing the point of this story. This story is ultimately about discipleship. It's a story about following God rather than yourself. This is ultimately the story of the man, not only who, didn't, who failed to sell his, thing. this is, sell his things, this is the story of the man who didn't follow Jesus. Not only is this the only time Jesus is said to love a particular person in Mark, but it's also the only example in Mark of someone being called to discipleship and refusing. Verse 22 has been referred to by a number of pastors and commentators as the saddest verse in the entire Bible. Billy Graham once said, the young man came with the right question to the right man and received the right answer, but he made the wrong decision. 
This is a passage that teaches that the one who wants to follow Jesus must fully surrender, leaving all else behind. Jesus is not saying in this passage that poverty is better than riches. Make a couple of clarifications. Jesus is not saying in this passage that poverty is better than riches, that to be poor is better than to be wealthy. There are many places in the Bible where the poor are spoken of as better off than the rich, but this is always qualified by something. It's better to have nothing than to have much with great trouble. There's always qualifications. For example, better is a poor man who walks in integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Another proverb, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Last one, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. So you see what I mean? Whenever the Bible talks about poverty being preferable, it's always qualified. In fact, as we look through the pages of the New Testament, there are wealthy followers of Jesus. Jesus doesn't teach here or elsewhere that poverty is the ideal necessarily. With that said, he does regard the awareness of need that results from poverty as a real blessing. As one commentator puts it, the greatest enemies to faith and obedience are self-satisfaction and pride, and nothing removes those bulwarks more effectively than poverty. It's hard to meet a poor person who is self-satisfied and prideful. So, but Jesus isn't necessarily saying that poverty is the ideal. Also, Jesus, relatedly, is not saying here that this should be a general prescription for all Christians. The command to sell everything and give to the poor should not be standardized. Jesus was taking a truth and applying it to a particular situation. It was appropriate for this particular situation, and there may be other situations in which this could apply, but the command to sell everything and give to the poor should not be applied to all professing Christians. For this man, riches had become a snare. He's trusting in his wealth. And Jesus calls him to abandon his wealth completely in order to come and follow Jesus. So while it shouldn't be applied to every other Christian, it shouldn't, Christian, excuse me, it shouldn't be ignored either. All of us must give up things in radical ways if we are to hear and heed the call to follow Jesus. Others may need to give up things in order to follow Jesus, like a job, a lifestyle, a sinful passion, a relationship, family members, as we'll come to see in a few minutes. So you see, Jesus isn't saying that this man needs to sell everything because to be poor is better than to be rich, period. He's also not saying that this man needs to sell everything because everyone who would follow him needs to sell everything. What Jesus is saying is that this man must leave all entanglement so that he can be fully devoted to Jesus. This is the universalizable call from this passage. Jesus calls this man, like he calls everyone, to remove every other support that might interfere with unconditional allegiance to Jesus. And this man couldn't do it. He didn't truly trust in the goodness of God. If he had, he would have welcomed Jesus' command as God's best for him, like I said a moment ago. Instead, he trusted in his own goodness and in the security of his wealth. The call to discipleship always comes at a cost. We've already seen, just in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen fishermen leave boats and nets. We've seen tax collectors leave their tables. Later on, we're going to see people leave positions, wealth, family members, and even leave their lives, 
give their lives for Jesus' sake. Following Jesus is not one more thing to do alongside the rest of our obligations. It replaces, it judges, it subordinates all other obligations in our lives to the one who calls us saying, follow me. Standing on his own merits, this rich man is self-assured and Jesus calls him out of his self-designed, self-curated safe haven. Just as he has called the disciples before, just as he calls Peter out onto the lake, out of the safe boat to walk on water to greet him by faith. But this man can't do it. You see, discipleship is the invitation to follow Jesus and to trust him completely above all else. It's essentially, Jesus' question to this man is essentially an invitation for the man to get out of the driver's seat of his life and give Jesus the keys. Because of his wealth, his love of money, this man can't do it. And the question that inevitably arises is this. What is that for you? What is that thing, that love, that allegiance that pulls you away from trusting completely in God? If you're a Christian in here, this could be that thing which most threatens your maturity and your fruitfulness in the gospel. If you're not a Christian in here, this could be the thing that's the reason that you won't step into relationship with Jesus by faith. What is that thing? Is it money? Is it something else? As I was studying this passage and praying through how it applies to us today, I was struck by one detail that I came across in my study. As I mentioned a moment ago, the dominant Jewish view of money and wealth at that time was that wealth was an indication of divine favor and a reward for piety and devotion. And so while provisions in Judaism were to be made for the poor and for their care, poverty was rarely associated with piety and devotion. And so in other words, if someone was wealthy and powerful, this person was seen as pious and having been rewarded by God for their devotion. So this was, a, this was the common Jewish belief at the time. This view was so strong that there was actual legislation from the scribes, the Jewish legal authorities in the Talmud, which is a collection of uh, Jewish laws and writings and interpretations of the, of the law. There was actually legislation that prohibited the giving away of all of one's possessions precisely because it would reduce a man to poverty. The written, so the, the, the Talmud has this um, uh, limit that it created. The, the amount that a person could distribute in almsgiving was limited at up to one-fifth of a person's property. Because, quote, poverty is worse than all the plagues of Egypt. The reason I share this is because I was struck by the fact that while this man, this rich man, would have no doubt been personally opposed to leaving the security of his wealth to follow Jesus, the culture around him had actually positioned him, the religious culture had positioned him to be opposed to radical trust in Jesus and likely would have affirmed him in his saying no to the question of Jesus, or to the demand of Jesus. So Jesus' question to this man is essentially an invitation for the man to get out of the driver's seat, and it was the opposite of what he was hearing from the culture around him. And when we fast forward to the present day, to 21st century Houston, it will probably be no surprise to you to hear that this is also the opposite of what you and I hear from the world around us. Independence rather than dependence is the air that we breathe in present-day Western American culture. 
You may remember studying the Enlightenment in a history class or two. The Enlightenment was a period of time that took place mostly in the 16 and 1700s that saw a revolution in Western thought and really the concept in Western thought of what it means to be human. It's difficult to summarize the Enlightenment in just a few sentences, but one of the key contributions in the Enlightenment to the way that we think today is the fact that human reason, our thoughts and our ability to understand and think and, and use logic and reason, human reason took the front seat. The locus of control, understanding, and authority for people moved from being external before the Enlightenment, whether we're talking about a deity or some external power like a government or something, to being internal. And that internal authority is in here. It's in my reason, my ability to synthesize, to understand, to determine things for myself. My ability to understand the rational, rational argumentation of another. You can think about it, for example, to give, it, to give just an example in terms of government. If you took American history, you may be familiar with the concept of the social contract. Seeing blank stares. Social, okay, good. All right, I'll tell you just, okay. If you, social contract. This is a theory of government that originated during the Age of Enlightenment, which focuses on the legitimacy of the authority of the state over the individual. So in other words, why does a government have authority over me? Was the question that the Enlightenment thinkers were wrestling with. You might recognize names like Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, John Rawls. In the Enlightenment, there was this reevaluation in the nature of, among other things, humanity itself. Humanity and in particular an emphasis on human reason and human independence was lifted up and understood to be endowed with certain natural rights, unalienable rights. Um, this is one of the tenets of most Western democracies, Western liberal societies. And the concept of the social contract is that the reason any government has authority over me is because I have consented as a reasoning person to give up some rights in favor of a government that provides security instead of just living in a state of nature or anarchy. And so government, in other words, is a human creation created by individuals for the good of individuals. In many ways, these developments in the understanding of what it means to be a person and what it means to be under the authority of a government have led to remarkable progress in human flourishing. I'm pro this in many ways. Perhaps most notably would be the concept of, of freedom the concept of liberty that underpins Western society, which eventually led to concepts of human equality, human autonomy, a capitalist society that facilitates innovation, social mobility, and so on. And one of the remarkable things about Christianity that I've found out over recent years is that Christianity is remarkably cross-cultural. I think any other major religion in this world brings with it a set of cultural requirements or norms in a way that Christianity doesn't. Christianity doesn't prescribe a culture. You can be a faithful follower of Jesus under any kind of government, be it an absolute monarchy, a communist regime, a democratic republic, any kind of government. You can also be a faithful follower of Christ speaking any language in any part of the world, eating any kind of food, singing any genre of music. The gospel of Jesus can be applied remarkably in any culture in the world. And this is, that's an incredibly unique thing about, his, about Christianity. Similarly, though, the gospel of Jesus will necessarily bring a critique with it to every human culture. There's no one human culture that Jesus says that's the right one. And so the question that we should be asking as beneficiaries of and citizens within 
post-enlightenment Western liberalism is what critique does the gospel of Jesus bring to our culture? So buckle in, we're going to be here a while. No, I'm kidding. One thing for today. To come back to our passage, you don't have to look far to see that this man's entanglement with his wealth is likely particularly applicable to many of us in this room. But I want to talk about something related but different. Part, part of the reason that this man's entanglement with money was, went unchecked as a spiritual stronghold on his heart is that the Jewish culture around him, the religious culture, held to a mistaken understanding of human flourishing and how to interpret the fruit in one's life as God's blessing. So the culture around this man misunderstood God's blessing and thought, because you're rich, you must be faithful to the Lord. You must be trusting God. You must be obeying his law. Today, we're in a challenging time in the life of the American church. And I think it comes directly out of post-enlightenment understanding of human nature and relationship. And to put it plainly, I think we hold to a vision of discipleship that is aimed almost exclusively at the head. The age age of enlightenment was was all about human reason and what goes on in our minds. And the American church right now is very much focused on a paradigm of discipleship that focuses primarily on the head. And as a result, there's often an unfortunate gap between the beautiful doctrines that we hold to as Christians and the culture of our churches. There's a difference between the doctrines that we hold to and the culture that we enjoy. We believe beautiful things, and sometimes in American churches, we struggle to see the fruit of these beautiful doctrines that we hold. Dallas Willard is a 20th century philosopher and writer on Christian spiritual formation. He observed that there was a significant shift that took place in American Christianity right around the middle of the 1900s. Throughout World War I, World War II, there'd been this worldwide cultural upheaval, which inevitably made it way into American society. This led to a series of cultural crises in which many American Christian leaders leaned into doctrines and statements of faith to create stability in Christian communities that didn't know how to deal with complexities of the world around. A lot of these leaders leaned into doctrines, statements of faith, the concept of worldview and primarily focusing on worldview. In some ways, these leaders unconsciously adopted the tenet of Western liberalism that held that the highest faculty of humanity, that the most important part of a person is their brain, their mind, their reason. And that if we get our thoughts right, inevitably we will act right. And while it's true in many ways that thought does precede action, this led to many American churches putting all of their chips in the pot of doctrinal formation and not very much in the concept of maturity and Christian living. And so Willard observes, after World War II, Christianity became about adherence to a set of doctrinal issues and principles with less of a focus on action and life change and becoming more like Christ and more focused on personal faith and devotion as expressed in adherence to the right set of doctrines. Discipleship, as a result, became much more about what you believe than about how you live, which is lamentable. This is, in my opinion, where we find ourselves in a culture where people subscribe to beautifully rich and compelling statements of faith and are just as impatient with others, quick to anger, and harsh with others as they were 10 years ago. People can tell stories of Jesus being gentle and gracious with them and then have a habit of sending snappy, sarcastic social media posts about people with whom they disagree. To give a few more examples from a book called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by Pete Cesaro, 
He says that we've learned to accept that you can be a gifted speaker for God in public and be a detached spouse or angry parent at home. You can function as a leader and yet be unteachable, insecure, and defensive. You can quote the Bible with ease and still be unaware of your reactivity. You can fast and pray regularly and yet remain critical of others, justifying it as discernment. You can be hurt by the unkind comment of a fellow believer and justify saying nothing at all because you avoid conflicts at all costs. Last one. You can lead a large ministry with little transparency, rarely sharing struggles or weaknesses. This is what happens when you focus on doctrines above all else and only get to lifestyle when it's convenient. The problem with this, of course, is one of emphasis. Both how you live and what you believe are critical aspects of discipleship and deep Christian spiritual formation. So we don't need to oversteer back and talk about just works alone, works alone, all that kind of stuff. Both are important. As the Apostle James points out, good works without faith are dead, but faith apart from works is useless. So in a Western liberal society that teaches about human autonomy and independence, that teaches us about rugged individualism, that makes celebrities of those who are able to define their truth through rebellion, through self-actualization, there is little room in our culture for an external authority who would demand total surrender and submission. And in a sense, the predicament of the rich man is the same one in which we find ourselves even today. In this story, this rich man is successful. He's read the Bible. He's eager to hear from Jesus. He needs that one more thing that is going to bring him the rest of the way to eternal life. He knows the right things. He wants to follow God his way. And he thinks there will be no problem fitting God into the rest of his life. Similarly, that's, that's similarly true today. We too are very successful. We've read our Bibles and we can be eager to hear from Jesus. We want the thing that's going to bring us the rest of the way to eternal life. And so often we know the right things and want to follow God our way. And we think that there will be no problem fitting God into the rest of our lives. And the thing is, focusing on doctrines alone makes that really easy. If I can simply believe the right things or say that I believe the right things, but still remain in the driver's seat of my life, that's doable for me. Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruit. Cultural commentator might say, talk is cheap. If I can simply believe the right things and remain in the driver's seat of my life, that's doable for me. But that's not the call. The call isn't to invite Jesus into the passenger seat to bring him along to make the rest of our lives better. The call is total surrender, which is nothing less than death to self. And this is terribly difficult. When Jesus said, sell all you have and give to the poor and come follow me and the man's face falls, he went away and Jesus looked around. The next verse, it says, Jesus looked around. I have to picture his eyes glistening with sadness as he watched the men walk away. And he says this to his disciples. He says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples were amazed, he says it again in verse 24, and this time with an analogy. Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus watches the man walk away disheartened, and then he looks at his disciples to acknowledge the difficulty of saying yes to this call. 
At first, it appears the disciples are missing the point, and so Jesus repeats himself and gives an illustration about a camel struggling to fit through the eye of a needle, and that gets their attention. Verse 26, it seems that they finally get it. It says, they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, then who can be saved? And that's when Jesus gives perhaps the central teaching in this passage. With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. When we come face to face with Jesus, we come face to face with the fact that the call of discipleship is the call to surrender completely. And that is something that we are hardwired not to do as human beings. It's offensive to our personal autonomy. For us today, it doesn't fit in the value system of our Western post-enlightenment mindset in which human reason and autonomy is paramount. And so we are affirmed in saying no to external authority, in rebelling against that external authority. We do not want to release control, no matter where you are on the scale of wealth, intelligence, power, health, circumstances, no matter whether you have much or little, if you're a man, a woman, or a child, there is a level playing field when it comes to this issue. None of us is ready to surrender our lives to God. Indeed, none of us is able to surrender our lives to God on our own. And at this point, it's perhaps helpful to remember that it's not, this isn't surprising. I don't want to share that about Western culture and make you think that we should be surprised or inordinately alarmed at where things are. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. The fact that we're in a culture that's priming us not to receive and respond well to Jesus' call to discipleship isn't surprising or new. Ever since the turn from dependence on God to dependence on the self that happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, the human heart has continued in self-reliance, refusing to honor God as king. And even now with a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity and the idea of receiving external authority, this cultural reality is nothing new. Christianity has been outlawed before. Christians have been killed before due to Christianity being seen as culturally toxic. We have a long way to go here in Houston before we break the record for living in the culture that's most hostile to Christianity ever. So I say that to say it's important to remember this isn't surprising. It shouldn't be inordinately alarming. I don't know what tomorrow holds. That's true. But Jesus told me that I don't need to worry about tomorrow, but that I am free to be faithful with what he's given us today, given me today, and to trust him to take care of tomorrow. The good news is that the salvation of souls and the entrance into true discipleship is just as impossible as it's ever been with man, and it's just as possible with God as it's ever been. That's good news. So while times have changed and the conversations have changed, the topics have changed, the labels have changed, many things have changed. This hasn't changed. It is just as impossible for you to say yes to Jesus when he demands that you follow him with all of your life by yourself as it's ever been, and it's just as possible. No matter what, from our perspective, seems like the roadblock that's in the way of you coming to faith or another person coming to faith, it's just as possible for God to break down that wall as it's ever been. I have a really good next point that's gonna take way too long for me to address right now. In fact, 
Dodds can testify that the verses 29 and 30 are like, are the reason I wanted to preach this passage this morning and we didn't even get to them, but I, I will push pause there. And I will say this, perhaps. Here's what I'll say. Jesus's invitation in this passage cuts to the very heart of each of us. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a man, a woman, a child, whether you're wealthy or not, whether you have status in our society or not, the the message of Jesus, the invitation of Jesus is one that cuts to your very heart, just as it does to mine. When Jesus invites us to come and follow him, he's not inviting us to take him along as our side piece but to take on a whole different system of allegiance with him as king. This is not a decision that we are able to make on our own. It's not something that we can earn for ourselves. Instead, it is to be received as a gift of God's grace. And if you read on to the next couple of verses, it's an invitation to be received into a family, to a real family. The cost of discipleship is real. The cost of following Jesus is real. Many books have been written upon about how costly it is to say yes to the call of Jesus. Sometimes it might look like selling everything that you have and giving to the poor so as to step out of entanglement to wealth. Sometimes it looks like leaving your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or even your children, as Jesus says, likely referring to adult children. But the wonderful promise is that you can receive right now. You're welcomed not just as an individual into personal enlightenment and salvation and being in heaven with Jesus. You're welcomed into a kingdom that Jesus came to announce is here right now. And so there are real benefits to notice, to admire, to fix your eyes on in following the call to follow Jesus, hearing the call, heeding the call to follow Jesus. And Sojourn, I believe that God has done a wonderful work in our church, building us into the kind of family that would be hospitable, that would receive people who have just been asked by Jesus to leave it all behind. It's a costly ask. Biblical values will run counter to our culture increasingly over the coming years. And so when we ask people who don't know Jesus, who have no interest in following Jesus to step out of whatever situation they're in, in order to follow Jesus, if we use the words of Jesus to invite them into faithfulness to his call, to his law, to his, to his way of life, that will, rev- that will be a costly ask that we make of people. And we get to be the family as we pursue unity and love with one another, where we're not just talking about our heads and everything that we believe, but we're experiencing what it looks like to draw nearer to one another and experience unity, experience family, to grow in our ability to welcome one another, not just those who are like us. In fact, probably especially those who aren't like us, following Jesus' model as the incar- Jesus, when he took on flesh, Jesus is God himself who came to associate with people unlike him. People who the culture said, that person is an outsider. Why are you hanging out with them? We've spoken about Jesus engaging with the disabled. We could speak about how Jesus might draw near to a person in the LGBTQ community today. We could speak about a person who is in a sexual relationship that's unfaithful 
to the call of God and who are asking to step out of that kind of intimacy that's out of line with God's design and promise intimacy in the family of God. The call of discipleship to Jesus is, is a tall ask. It's a serious call. But God promises to be with us, to empower us to do so. And he helps us to walk alongside one another as we learn what it looks like to take just the next step of obedience to the Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for teaching us about the call to discipleship, for reminding us that we are in a world that is increasingly hostile to you, but we don't need to be worried. Thank you for reminding us that even the strongest roadblocks that might seem to be keeping us from you, keeping others from you, might be impossible through the work of man alone, but are not impossible for you. It is impossible for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. With man, but with you, all things are possible. And so Lord, I pray that as we, we pray, as we live life together, as we lean into what it means to be pursuing healthy discipleship at Sojourn, that you would continue to build us as a family of God, that you would build us in unity and love with one another, that you would help us fight the same fight that churches across our culture are fighting to live not as a country club, but as a family. I pray that you'd help us to draw near to people who are unlike us, to consider ways to go out of our way, to lay down our lives for our friends. And that you'd help us first and foremost to remember the most important commandment, that everything in the Bible points us not to an obedience seeking to earn salvation, but points us to you, a faithful God who loves us, who desires relationship with us, who wants our love. And so I pray that you'd increase our enjoyment of you together and help us to walk faithfully and ever more faithfully as the day draws near for your return. We love you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.